Today's show is being brought to you by Fox Searchlight Pictures, presenting The Shape of Water. Nominated for seven Golden Globe Awards, including Best Director, Guillermo del Toro, Best Actress, Sally Hawkins, Best Supporting Actor, Richard Jenkins, Best Supporting Actress, Octavia Spencer, and Best Picture of the Year. Also nominated for a record 14 Critics' Choice Awards, including Best Picture of the Year, The Shape of Water, for awards consideration in all categories. When it comes to revolutionizing film scores, Oscar-winning composer Hans Zimmer is always at the forefront. No more is that so in his sixth collaboration with director Christopher Nolan on Dunkirk, in which Zimmer delivered a very original sonic score that synced so sublimely with the evacuation of Allied soldiers in northern France during World War II. We talk with Zimmer today about Dunkirk and his co-composing on Blade Runner 2049 on Crew Call. The first thing I want to talk about is melodic versus tonal. And what I mean by that is, is there, like in Dunkirk and in Blade Runner 2049, it's, it's like the score, it's like we're feeling almost like what's inside the head of the character or what they're going through. Or the situation at hand, it doesn't. It's it's not like uh, it's I, I, I under, very I, integral I, I under, to the scene. I understand scene. your question, and part of why it's difficult to ask the question is this because we're talking about music, which I see as an autonomous language, and I think as you're trying to ask these questions, you're figuring it out too that it's actually very difficult to to talk about this. Um, Blade Runner and Dunkirk, to to, to me, are uh, 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 you know, very different projects, but the, 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 there's a philosophy I've been building towards, which is that I, I don't want to tell the audience what to feel. I want them to feel something. And by that, and I think one of the powers that music has, it, 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 can, it can act like a door. You're opening a door for people to come in, come in and experience something. But I don't want, I don't want to be didactic. I don't want to t tell you what to feel. I just want to give you the possibility of feeling. So I think ever since Thin Red Line, I suppose, my scores have become a little less... Um, you, you, the the tunes have become a little less overt because I think I think it's it's the tune it's it's the melodies that 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 put that stamp you know that take the autonomy away in a funny way and I, and I want I I want the audience to have an experience and and carry on having an uh, autonomous experience and not be a slave in a funny way to my, you know, to my emotions. Now, on Dunkirk, when did you start having conversations with Christopher? And did he give you any kind of guidance? Or does he does he yield to you? Does he say, here, look, here's the footage. Let me know what you come up with. <laughs> you really think so. <laughs> um, okay. Dunkirk, without a shadow of a doubt, is the most collaborative project I ever worked on. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, look, everybody knows the stories from Interstellar, how Chris gave me one page, et cetera, et cetera. So there have always been different ways of working. Um, I read the script, and one of the things I 
noticed instantly was that the script is actually written in a musical form, um, which automatically made Chris, you know, a, a, you know the co-composer, if that makes any sense. I mean, it, it you know, he, he boldly staked a co-authorship you know, but just by by writing in 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 a certain style in a certain form that I instantly recognized as being a musical device. Um, from there, it was oh God. It was it was a journey. I think it was the hardest, the truly the hardest movie I ever worked on. And we'll get to that in a second. I mean, the the second stage of it was. I mean, yes, there were lots of conversations, and yes, I did have an idea which I then for seven months regretted because it was an idea that nobody had ever done before. And you know, when, when, you, when, you, when you mention an idea and it just seems like all sparkly and exciting, etc., and then you're actually trying to follow through and that, you f and that you're figuring out that with, you know, every 10 seconds you're going to come up across a, a, with a problem. And since it's new, no, you can't look at history to try to solve it. So, you know, part of it was, you know, just, just the mechanics of, of following through with this idea became, uh, I mean, truly, you know, I mean, I was working crazy hours every day. Then I would go home, fall into bed and dream about the thing all night. So it was for seven months, it never left me alone. Um, and what was the idea? The the idea was that since Chris had written in this musical form, that it it, it would be, and I'm not going to tell you all. I'm I, for once we're not going to go and reveal all our secrets, maybe because you know, look historically, if you look at uh, if you look at what we did with Batman Begins, where we sort of didn't quite know what we we're doing, you know, or, you know, it was our first collaboration and James Dean Howard was part of it. And, you know, we just had fun and we had an idea and we invented a sound. a tone right um, and it was the first time where I really truly stripped you know the tunes down to their barest minimum which is back to your first you know your, to your first question um, but then it seemed like every other movie started to adopt that sort of attitude and that sort of sound you know while for us it was very specific to batman you know it gets slightly worse when we get to inception where in the screenplay in chris's story in his script he had written this idea of these big brass sounds that carry across the city and i thought uh, and he thought it was a great way to show that time was being stretched or manipulated
so yeah you know i did i did the great brass sounds which then which was you know they were a story point and then they got absconded with into everybody's movie trailer um and so that was a very long way of saying some of the secrets i'm going to keep this time um but um Part of the idea was since Chris had had already written something which which to me was an overtly musical form, and one of the things which I think is very interesting about what Chris did this time, you know, here is a man that I've been working with for the last I don't know fifteen sixteen years, who's been he's a writer, and he and he has gotten you know he's been honing the craft of writing great dialogue, because that's what writers do, and and. And here he set out, sets out overtly to go and get rid of dialogue and and um, and have the minimal amount of words to um, and the minimal amount of exposition and the minimal amount of information conveyed through words, but try to actually make a movie that is an experience. And it's quite an experimental movie, you know. And people are. To, you know, I remember Chris saying to me, and it's going to be 90 minutes long. Um, you know, and, and we've always been making these long movies. So, you know, the, so there was, a, there was a great focus upon, uh, upon what that experience was going to be. And I think what, the, the conversations Chris and I were having, you know, part of the conversation was that if you look at war movies over the last whatever, 20, year, 20 odd years, of which I've done quite a few, um, they either don't have music in them or they have, you know, or the music is, is, is there to support an emotional reaction or it's supposed to sh show heroism and any of these things. And the first thing we wanted to do is not, not to do any of that. Number one, our, our music starts in the black on the first frame with you know with Chris's watch and it finishes you know way past the Dolby sign or whatever um so we i we created a 100 minute framework for the, of of score you know uh, and i'm hesitating at actually using the word music but i suppose it is music we created a 100 minute framework for the movie to 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 exist and be edited and and be created in um because i thought chris with his 90 minutes was being a little optimistic and it turns out the movie is 94 minutes so i don't i i, I think he was he, he he was truer to his word than i i was giving him credit for at the time and i think the, the collaboration ultimately you know and and yes i mean we can talk about richard king and we can talk about the other people that that were all part of it but the collaboration was so tight and so driven by and this is where it gets complicated because we have the wrong i have to use the wrong word by chris's vision when of course it's not vision and the eye it's 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 his listening with your eye it was you know that was part of it that 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 the image and the sound truly become one and and i think it's the closest that both chris and i 
ever achieved that ambition of 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 n that there isn't a score that is separate from the movie or that there's a movie that sits on top of the score or or you know that that the, there's a there's a way that a score can just separate itself from the movie and this is this is right inside i mean this is with you know everything is inside melts with the sound completely and there's not a all, dialogue all the images you know and there's not a i mean typically we we hear the thing of the sound you know the yeah. the composer's lobbying with the sound mixer to get his 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 cues the loudest or vice versa <laughs> or the sound guys trying to get his his cues the loudest. no i never do that i never you know i but never do that you know, um in fact, I'm the one who, i tell you why, because when I go to the stage, I keep telling them to turn the music down. Um, no, because I get excited about the new thing. I get excited about what Richard King did, you know. I mean, I've heard my stuff, you know, so I'm going, no, 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 I want to hear a bit more. Of, and, you know, obviously, this one was a, a, sonically a, a huge puzzle for all of us, you know. Um, and, and... No, actually, let's not call it a puzzle. I think it was it, what was important was to be in, incredibly collegial about it and to be incredibly respectful of each other. Whereby, um, you know, there wasn't there was no way I was going to you know the first time I heard what Richard was doing with the Spitfires, you know, um, I just I just went. I am going to so make sure I'm going to stay out of the way of this and let that shine and let l really support this, you know, and vice versa, that that suddenly things that Richard was doing would turn up over here and we would m manipulate it and it would be, you know, uh, I remember, you know, that like an accident happened where some of the sound effects suddenly ended up on the music stem and uh, when they were trying to do the foreign versions, it, it took us a while to figure out that it's it it, it is an electronic score, um, or some sort of strange hybrid of things. But um, the, you know, there, there, there was a moment in time where we went off to London and recorded a, a, a perfectly good symphonic score. Um, and put it up against the movie. Now this isn't this is an expensive mistake to make, and just go. This is so not our movie, you know. Okay, let's throw that one in the bin. Today's show is being brought to you by Fox Searchlight Pictures, presenting The Shape of Water, nominated for seven Golden Globe awards, including Best Director Guillermo del Toro, Best Actress Sally Hawkins, Best Supporting Actor Richard Jenkins, Best Supporting Actress Octavia Spencer and Best Picture of the Year. Also nominated for a record 14 Critics' Choice Awards, including Best Picture of the Year, The Shape of Water, for awards consideration in all categories. Was that a completely different written score? Or was oh, it yeah, yeah, very yeah, yeah. similar? Uh, um, it well, it's all, you know, you're, you're, you have to sneak up on it. You have to, like, learn the language. You know, it was part of, 
you know, the, it, it was an experiment. Yes, it was a different, it, it was a different thing, and it just didn't work. Have you had that luxury on other films where you record a score, it doesn't work, and you're like, okay, we're going to do something no, different? No, 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 no. What, actually, what happened on um, the Dark Knight Rises? I had, I had an idea for an orchestral score, and but it was it was a pretty outrageous idea, and I went to Warner Brothers. Um, and I said, have I earned the right yet to hire a huge orchestra for three days and just try this experiment? And if I don't like what happens, and if Chris doesn't like what happens, we can just f bin it, forget about it, and you guys aren't going to say to me, well, Hans, you just blew half the music budget. And it, it uh, you know, and I have to give Paul Brutek, head of music, credit. I mean, it took, it took him less than half a second to go, yeah, of course, go on. Um, and luckily, Chris liked it. So, so you know, so, so our, 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 you know, our history is that we we would would try these things and they would work out. And this 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 movie was just you know it was just rejecting things. I mean, the images were rejecting things. The story was rejecting things. There's a there's a you know, I was thinking about this. There's a there's a history of music that is written out of uh, out of real life tragedy you know and it's it's a complicated thing are you supposed to like this music are you supposed to go and even write music to um real life tragedy i mean you know how can you not be manipulative so you know it was questions like this i mean uh, that that were constantly getting in the way of me getting any sleep, if you see what I mean. And I know I was driving Chris crazy, but you know he's he he hung in there with me. You know, uh, uh, me asking the most ridiculous questions. Plus, every time I was I was veering off the path of what that original idea was. Every time I found a shortcut. Chris was the one who insisted that you know I would go and get back and 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 preserve and and be and and show the right respect to my original idea, you know, I, which usually meant I didn't have an answer. I did not know how to solve a problem, and you know I was holding up the dub and I was driving everybody crazy. But at the same time, I think the collaboration, and maybe it's because we've been. I think this is an important part. I think because we've been friends for so many years, you know, you really try to do your best for your friends. And when your friends, when you watch your friends doing their best, I mean, part of the Dunkirk experience was that I actually, I went there, you know, because he was shooting on the actual beach, on the actual anniversary. And I remember arriving and it was bitterly cold and the wind was blowing in from the North Sea just the, the only way you know the, the weather can hit you from the North Sea and sand everything was sad I mean you had sand in your teeth you had sand in your ears you had sand in your eyes and actually I mean it, it's right over there I actually picked up a handful of sand and just put it into a, a little jar and took it with me and I just always had it next to me when I was writing but the experience of being on that beach, seeing everybody miserable, seeing what they were going through, except for Chris and Heute, who were just, you know, 
I mean, literally, as I arrived, you know, everybody's standing there freezing. And Chris and Chris is, Hoyt is in a T-shirt and Chris is in a, uh, you know, like just, just, just a short jacket while everybody else has more layers on than you can imagine. But they're running down that beach and Hoyt is lifting this enormous IMAX camera as if it was a toy, you know, and, and, and you, you just have to respect that it's not easy. It's not easy. And the amount of effort and the amount of just physical effort that goes into Chris, uh, Chris making these movies needs to be respected. I mean, people, people always, you know, it's like the cart before the horse. They all go, oh, Chris Nolan, well, yes, he's, he's young and he's successful. And, he's a, and it must be easy for him to go and get the money to do what is on paper, surely a very uncommercial proposition. We're dealing with a slither of not very well-known history outside of England. Um, we're doing a we're doing a war movie that hardly has any dialogue in it. You know, we're we're not concerned about the stars, and when we're 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 not. We're not doing any of the things that every other war movie has done. So what we're doing is we are truly out there on thin ice, um, really approaching it like an art movie, uncompromisingly approaching it like an art movie, and then somehow turning this into a commercial success. You know, so... I, I think it says I think it says more you know and and forget about all those things that we can talk about which is you know the power of marketing the power of you know Chris Nolan's name etc yes that'll get you through first weekend or you know you hope it gets you through first weekend but ultimately it was the power of the movie and it was the power of Chris's work and everybody's work for that matter that made people go and see this film that would never go and see a, a, a war movie about a place called Dunkirk that they'd never heard of, um, where something happened that um, they didn't really care about. And that seems to be irrelevant to our times. I mean, it's a period piece. It's like, look, I remember, I don't know, a few years ago, Pharrell Williams coming to me and saying, that he had this idea for a movie, and he said it's uh, African American. It's period. It's about women and mathematics. I'm going. That's that's the most uncommercial idea I ever heard. And he goes, Yeah, but there are rockets in it, <laughs> you know. And that became hidden figures, you know. And, and uh, you know, and, and it's the same thing, you know. Chris comes to me with the script. I'm going, Oh, Dunkirk, right? Okay, yeah, I know about this because I. I read history, um, and I'm going, so how are we going to pull this off? How are we going to pull this off? How are we going to pull the time thing off? How are we going to, you know, Chris's, you know, and I think he'll forgive me for saying this, constant obsession with time, but honestly, as a human being, we should all be obsessed with time, you know? Um, love and time, I think, are the two things that we, 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 we should spend 
our great concerns with. Um, so, sitting in my room, I felt, I truly felt that every sound I made, every note I played, every gesture, everything, I felt as if Chris was sitting at the keyboard next to me. And I can't think of a movie where, and we argued, I mean, we argued like cats and dogs. I mean, we argued, I mean, Terry Malick once said to me, because there's no, not a dissimilar experience, uh, Terry Malick once said to me, the way we talk to each other, only brothers can talk to each other. And I think the way we talk to each other, only brothers can talk to each other. Trying to, trying to tame the beast, trying to conquer the beast, trying to figure out how to do this, how to not slip up and how to not get sentimental, how to not get conventional, how to not you know how to in, how to invent when 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 you're so tired that you can't even figure out how to get home you know so that that's Dunkirk in a nutshell <laughs> did did chris ever bring up your score for thin red line um i'm kind of more expanded part of the question is i remember um years ago uh -huh. coming here and, and 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 when i spoke to you in 2003 and one of the, one of the, um, I think researchers on the score, or the arrangers for for Thin Red Line, said they before, before he knew what he was working on, he had received hymns, church hymns, to that was a, a an inspiration for yeah, Thin it, Red Line, it did, or maybe yeah. it started there. Yeah, it started there, and then it quickly became something completely different. Well, no, no, let me tell you about Thin Red Line. Oh, um, I mean, there's a, a, a particular piece in it. Um, it's the opposite to Church Hymn, um, called Journey to the Line. everybody's favorite temp piece in this town um, and it's a it's a piece that Chris really likes and we call it the forbidden cue because it's like you know if anybody tempts this one more time you know I, I, I'm gonna burn down the house um, and so when I was working when I just started working on on Man of Steel I, I only heard this afterwards Chris, who was a producer on it, saw the movie and they had put in Journey to the Line as a temp piece. And Chris said, you have to take that out. You can't show Hans the movie with that piece in it. <laughs> so 
you know, so 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 he's very protective of me. We don't temp. I mean, that's you know, it's a blessing and a curse. Chris does not temp his movies, and quite rightly so. He says. You know, isn't the job to go and invent something, an autonomous language, something new for what we are working on? Who in their right mind would want to, as a filmmaker, would take their ideas from somebody else's movie? Um, so, we, you know, and the reason I'm saying it's a, it's a blessing and a curse is a, so I am confronted with a complete blank sheet but the sheet sometimes stays blank for a long time because I'm not ha I don't have the idea yet and I'm for forever you know they are working one of the one of the things about Chris is, is I mean he he's an incredibly efficient filmmaker you know he does not go into overtime he does not go over budget it just is unheard of he will go and get the work done and then he's got the crazy German sitting in his dark room going, I have no idea how to write this scene. And, you know, and I, this has, ha has happened so many times, you know, not even on this movie, on, on other movies in the past, um, where we're talking, I have an idea, and I'm going, okay, I'll send it over to you tomorrow. And he goes, promise? I'm going, yeah, promise. You know, I start working on the idea. It's pretty good, and it leads to another idea, and then ooh, suddenly it suddenly it is tomorrow. But there are more ideas to be had, and so two weeks later, I get a phone call. You know, whatever happened to that idea you were going to send over tomorrow? I'm going, oh, it's nearly ready. You know, and you know, there's a sort of a detente. You know, there's a sort of a he he. Look, he knows he knows. Usually, the reason it hasn't turned up is because. I have too many ideas, or or it's just, it's 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 the obsession of, I look the obsession on Dunkirk became that I wanted to go and make all the sounds. You know, it's like, you know, you know the the other great miscomprehension is is that an electronic score might be easier than an orchestral score. It's not. On a proper electronic score, I'm not saying when you buy a synth and you just go through the presets. You're actually sitting there and you're making, you're, you're crafting the instrument and you're making the sound for each and every individual note as opposed to just having a bunch of people play them. So um, that is not good when it comes to budget and time constraints. You know, this is not really what the producer wants to hear you do. Um, so... Um, but 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 yeah. But Chris Chris under Chris understands, and Richard King, you know, and Gary Rizzo. I mean, our sound team. They, un, they you know they understand that one of the things, and I think this is the most successful version we have ever done, is we we managed to create a sonic world that was cohesive, and had integrity all the way through, and we never lost our footing including Chris phoning me up one day and sort of being very shy about asking this this question, you know, saying, look, I'm going to ask you something, you know, and he was, I could tell he was worried about what my reaction would be. He said, have you ever thought about Elgar's Enigma variations and Nimrod in particular? Um, 
and I'm going, oh, I love it. I love it. Oh, yeah, yeah no, no, no. I think, oh, I think that'll be that'll be a great idea. I think that'll be our one bit of emotional music. But, you know, and and instantly my brain went, well, hang on. Elga wrote 14 variations. Didn't he, in a funny way, throw down the gauntlet to go and write another variation? I got together with Ben Valfish. Ben Valfish seems to be appearing a lot in um, my recent history, just because he's a friend and um, did he's he, a brilliant did, composer. Did he come out of remote control? Was he, he, is was here. he here? He is here. He is here. He is here. Okay. He is here. Um, I found Ben, I saw him, I was in London. I'll tell you this. I mean, you can always cut it. I was in London working on something, you know, and just watching some movie on my computer, and I absolutely loathed the movie, but I loved the music, so I watched it all the way to the end. And then, oh, Ben Valfish. And so, I, I, you know, I, I thought I sort of found his email address online, and I wrote sort of a fanboy letter going, I just heard your music, and I thought it was really stunning and ex extraordinary. Um, and I didn't hear back. And I'd write you back. I'd so write you back. It would totally write and you and back. A, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a few months go by, and I'm, I, I, I'm having lunch with a friend, and I don't know how we get onto the subject, and he's saying, oh, he's having lunch with Ben Balfish tomorrow. I said, oh, yeah, I, I, send him, I send him an email going, you know, I really like this music, but he never wrote back to me. And curiously, after that lunch, when I got back to my apartment, there was a message on my computer, an email, and it said, you probably mean the composer, Ben Valfish. I am the lawyer, Ben Valfish. <laughs> so, um, and, and look, look, within hours, you know, um, the, the Ben Valfish, the composer, you know, and I <laughs> met up and um, became close friends. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, as 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 you can tell from um, Blade Runner, you know, or as you can tell from Hidden Figures. I mean, we you know, we truly enjoy working together. And Ben, being coming from, uh, you know, while I lack musical education, Ben is over musically educated. And and you know, it was, uh, and actually the 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 parallel between the two movies is is. Um, on Dunkirk, Ben, who knew everything about Elgar and Nimrod, etc., you know, became really my, you know, I told him what I want, and Chris, you know, we both said, okay, this is what we want to do with this piece. This is going to be the new variation that nobody has done before. So we were being horrible and didactic, etc. On Blade Runner, it actually, at a certain point, turned around and I loved it um, where I became Ben's keyboard player. Ben is a marvelous pianist, a marvelous player. He really is. But there's a there's a feel I have, 
you know, it's, it's like, you know, people are always talking about that elusive feel. You know, well, I have my feel. Everybody has their feel. And so I just, you know, I, I ended up, and I loved it, working for Ben, just being his keyboard player for a while, you know, with Denis and uh, Villeneuve and uh, Joe Walker in the room. Um, yet again at crazy hours. I don't know why it always happens at 3 a.m. So the Elgin themes. Where for those for those who are listening, where where in the film is that? It's really look. Let's let's just let's just explain why. Um, it is especially Nimrod peculiar because it's Elga wrote it about a German called Jäger. Um, to the it's it it describes a part of the English mentality, soul, um, the, you know, it's part of the fabric of that nation in a way that I can't think of any other piece being that. And so the game we were playing in a funny way is, is by hinting at it and not, you know, and, 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 and doing our utmost to for you not to recognize it, to to postpone the moment when you when we would actually, and even then, even when we truly unleash the, the theme, it's only for a moment when the little boats come in, and right at the end on the, you know on the train it it you know it's you know when you when and and again I think this is a, it's it's a brilliant directorial decision by Chris to have. A Churchill speech read by a young boy out of a newspaper, you know, um, you know, to take the edge off of everything that we know and how we how we expect a Churchill speech to be delivered. So, so, the, you know, the, the, the you know, and and it really, we really did recompose it, you know. Um, I wonder if Elgar, well, never mind, you know, you can't worry about, you know, is, you know, what would Elgar have said? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I suppose Elgar would have done what every other musician does, um, get excited that somebody liked his piece enough to spend time and, uh, and reinvent it. Um, but the game was to, 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 for those that knew it, to have to to feel that it might it it might be coming, and then and then just give you a glimpse of it, and then you know take it away again, or or figure you know do a transfiguration of it. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch the topic for a second. Um, touring, did you love it? Will you do it again? Well, be because as a fan, thing. it's the the best here, thing in the world. Here's the thing. I sat in this room, this dark, windowless room, for 40 years, and finally my musician friends, because I have stage fright, you know, look, let me just be honest, you know, put me in front of people and I turn into a terrible mess. So um, so finally my friends, I mean, you know, like Johnny Marr, et cetera, were beating me up quite severely going, 
there comes a point where you owe it to your audience to actually do things in real time and to look them in the eye. They are your audience. They have supported you. Go out there and be counted, you know, or be accountable to them. Um, and so at the same time, I, I wanted to, you know, once they got me into this idea of actually doing it, and once I got them into the idea that the only way I was going to do it is if they were going to come along, um, it actually became quite an interesting thing because there were quite there were a few few questions that were raised instantly. One of them was orchestras, orchestral music, not really the most popular thing these days. And one of the things which scares the living daylights out of me is that we're going to lose the orchestras. And the thing I love about Hollywood and films is that we are the last place on earth that on a daily basis commissions orchestral music. And this idea came up of doing Coachella. And I thought, nobody's dragged an orchestra out into the desert to a... And it's not going to be... And, and the experiment is, it is not going to be a film music fan audience. It is going to be an audience. And what we're going to do and what I'm going to try to do is to get us out of the pigeonhole of we're doing film music. I want it to be music, just music, just call it music. Stop with the pigeonhole. And the other, the other part I thought which was important was you know, I was thinking about what is the orchestral experience to, uh, to, to a certain degree. Well, you go and see, you watch a man's back all evening with his back to you, and you watch a bunch of people playing the instruments while reading a paper. And it just, the image of a failed marriage, a long, you know, 25-year-old failed marriage on a Sunday on a Sunday morning, you know, people reading the paper, not not talking to each other, suddenly sort of came to me. And I thought, can we take the conductor away? And I went, I I, I talked to you know, I, I talked to the musicians about it, and saying, can we take, can I take the conductor away from you? And as many of you, can you learn the music by heart? Because you know, look, if you see a piano concerto. You know, the pianist is playing without music. He's learned it. They can all learn it. They can all do it. And so I just, because what I wanted was, I wanted the audience and the orchestra to have, the, I, all I felt was that the, the conductor is a wall, unless it's a truly magnificent conductor. I mean, you know, Bernstein, Dudamel, I mean, you name them. There is, but it's a handful, right? There, there's always been a handful of great conductors. But what I wanted was I wanted the musicians and the audience to have, to you know, not a wall between them. I wanted them to be able to forge some autonomous relationship. Is that kind of like how Elton John does certain things? Like when whenever he involves an orchestra? But James Newton okay. Howard, of course, was, you know, and, uh, you know, the late great Paul Buckmaster were um, two film composers, uh, were... were Elton's orchestrators, yes. Except I think I just took it to a, I just took it to a greater extreme. You know, I mean, um, you know, when I when when I said, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm I'm going to go and have seventy two people on stage, 
you know, the, I, I could see a, a couple of people taking a deep breath, but, but it worked, you know. Um, I didn't know if it was going to work. I mean, the, all these things we were told that we shouldn't be doing, you know, like um, the whole thing about people's attention spans, it's different now, you know, you got to keep things short and etc. You know, I'm sorry, the version we do of The Dark Knight is 22 minutes long. The version we do of Pirates is 14 minutes long. And people, again, you know, I, th I think what we managed to do, you know, and I mean we, not I, we, the musicians, we gave them an experience. And, and Coachella, I, for me, you know, was was incredibly important because I, I, we managed to go and tear down the walls. We managed to make orchestral music relevant. So you're going to do it? Do you think you'll do this again next year or in 2019? No, I'll, 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 I'm always, you know, look, the only reason I, I get, I do anything is. If I have an idea, yes, I will do it again. I have to say, I mean, I, I enjoyed it tremendously, um, including the fear. Yeah, I mean, little fear adds a little spice. Did to your you life. did you have that during the eighty? Didn't did you? I didn't do anything. To, I mean, I left school, joined a band. Um, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny band. You know, playing pubs and workingmen's clubs. You know. Um, up and down the motorways in England, and even that, I mean, it was it was just every every night was just sheer terror. So I thought um, that there has to be another. And I suppose, I suppose my my reluctance to go and play um, was, you know, it really helped the film career. Um, and 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 really, what happened? was, you know, okay, I'm dropping names, but this is, we're in Hollywood, we drop names. Very casually, you know, no, you know, because he's smart, Pharrell Williams said to me a few years back, hey, I'm going to do the Grammys. Do you want to come play guitar? And I thought only an idiot would say no, right? So I got to play guitar for Pharrell at the Grammys, and the thing that happened was this was this is the Grammys. It's his show. He made sure I was okay. He never lost eye contact with me. He made sure that his brother was going to go and get through the show without complete freakout. And it was and, uh, and 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 honestly, I mean, it was it was so much fun. It wasn't it it wasn't my show. It wasn't my problem. It wasn't my. Um, and for the first time, I sort of realized how I could do this, and the way to do it is surround yourself with with your with your best friends, you know, because and and I learned so much. I learned so much about music doing this tour. I learned that it's not how well you play; it's how well you listen, because the only way it's going to sound any good is if the guitarist is playing a solo you want to go and find the most amazing way of supporting him, right? So musicians are really good at listening. And the other thing I found out, and I kept trying to explain this to the audience, is, 
you know, my, my cellist, Tina Guo. She started when she was three years old, violin. Then, you know, she changed to cello, but she was, you know, she practiced all her life, eight hours a day. And we were talking about how musicians start. I, I can't even remember when I first started making noise, you know, playing the piano, whatever, whatever I was doing to the piano. You know, other kids were playing with Lego. But what musicians do is they, they, they consistently work on this idea of playfulness because the operative word in music, of course, is play. And so while everybody else, I suppose, has that creativity knocked out of them, because, you know, you're not supposed to play with Legos anymore when you're grown up. We just got really good at playing with Legos and we have a playfulness. You know, we, we live our life in a playful way. And it turns out it's not so bad. And if everybody else, you don't have to be a musician to try to preserve some of that playfulness in your life. It's not such a bad thing to do. You know, it's, 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 it's not a waste of a life. Um, changing, changing topic and industry top, uh, an look, you are a beacon in, in film music in town. No, more bacon. No, no, no. You, but we look, a lot of composers look to you. Your opinion matters. It really, it really does. In the Academy, your, your voice is important. Is the pending Disney merger for Disney Fox merger on the minds of composers or does it just mean more content or different types of content? Because the music's never going to go I, away. I don't know if it means more content or less content or whatever it means. Because, well, let me just give it to you truly as, as um, from the perspective of the composer. I mean, remember, we composers are a sneaky bunch because we can't quite get caught at the game. If you're, if you're, if you're a screenwriter, everybody seems to know how to rewrite your words, etc., and point at the words and change your story around. But since we work in the secret language called music, you know, we, we write, you know, the, the directors I work with, the, the filmmakers I work with, I mean, encourage me to have an autonomous voice. They encourage me to go and invent and do something different. And I just see this, I mean, curiously enough, I'm working for both companies at this moment, which probably means I'm going to be only working for one company in a second. I think, I think, I think what, we, what, what we need to be careful about, we need to be careful that we make, this sounds very obvious. Uh, what I always loved about Hollywood was that it was a place that, in a peculiar way, encouraged failure. Because, you know, take Dunkirk as an example. I mean, here's a movie that on paper doesn't feel like it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a very commercial proposition. And somebody at the studio, many people at the studio, have the courage to say, we'll greenlight this, we'll go and do it. And then we do our best, and 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 we we do something that interests and delights the audience, and the people will come. So, you know, it sounds stupid, but it is our job. It's everybody's job. The only way we can protect the industry is number one. It is up to us to make good movies. 
that people want to see and that are relevant. And the other part is that the studios realize that sometimes we're going to go and try an experiment and it's just going to, it's just not going to work out. It's just, you know, nobody ever tries to make a bad movie. You know, it's, it's too hard. You know, it's it's too hard to you know the hours are too grueling. Every everybody tries to make, and sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't work out. And that the that the, the, the studio system or that the studios um, maintain a level of courage to let mm -hmm. us try to make a Dunkirk. You know, that the that that the, the studios cheer us on. When we go and look, I, I I remember when, you know, when I played Chris my ideas for the Joker and the Dark Knight, you know, and it was that tiny, insidious, horrible, nasty little sound. Imagine going to, you know, uh, an executive at the studio and going, well, for your big summer uh, blockbuster, let me play you the, the villain theme, you know, and it's that. So you have to, you have to surround yourself with people who, who, who have the courage to see you through with your, with your vision and with your ideas. And you have to work with studios and you have to work with um, with executives who realize that ultimately we're all in this together and the only way we're going to come out alive is if we are um, adventurous and if we are inventive and if we have something to say and if we are relevant because that's that's my problem that's my fear if we make too many bad movies that if we have a summer of bad movies it's not just about the movie. It's if I think the psychology of the audience is that you know it's the weekend. You know what are we going to go and do? Oh, let's go to the movies. Well, if there's nothing that's going to delight them to see, they're going to get out of the habit of going to the movies. You know, I don't think it's about you know that everybody can watch their movie on 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 streaming or whatever. I remember the press using. A, a wonderful term, I and mean, actually, it might have been Chris who invented it at the time, when when we were doing Inception, and they were talking about communal dreaming, and I think that's what movie, the movie experience at its best is. You know, a movie, you've been there, you know what it's like to watch a movie by yourself or to watch it with, with a room full of strangers, but something happens with that room full of strangers where suddenly. We all, if the film is any good, we all f get to share an experience and we get to share an emotion. And that's, that's a wonderful human moment. And, and so, uh, yes, the, you know, the more the merrier. Give us the opportunity. If you give us the opportunities, we will come up with the stories, we will come up with the music, we will come up with the ideas. And we know what our job is. Our job is to invent. Our job is to go and 
not do the same old, same old, because the same, you know, our job is do not bore the audience. Our job is, our job is to, in these days, in these t hard times, to recognize and be responsible for the hard work that went into the money that a person is going to put down to go and see our movie. And with that comes responsibility that we better entertain them, we better delight them, we better do something, stimulate them, uh, you know, uh, give, give them something that they, first of all, don't ask the audience what they want to see. That's not, it's not their job to tell us. You know, I know what, I know what the answer is. They want to go and see another Star Wars movie. Our job is to, to give them the unimaginable. That's our job. We're supposed to go and put something in front of them that, they, that delights them, that surprises them. And so I can't look at this from a business perspective of is a Fox-Disney merger going to be good or bad for us? I think ultimately everybody in their own way is, if, if you bring it right down to its bare essential, is interested in telling a story. And everybody is interested in trying to tell a story that and wants their story to be heard. And if you tell the story well, if look, if you tell the story as well as Chris Nolan tells Dunkirk, people will go and see a movie about this blip in history that was very defining but not very well known. And they will come away with an experience. And it's art and it's craft and it's all of those things. And those that dare win and those like Chris who can pull this off to take something that is on paper not a great com commercial or artistic proposition and turn it into something that moves you. They're the guys you want to go and hang out with and support. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Crew Call podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe for this and all other Deadline podcasts in the podcasts app, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.